uh, even not in the church because it's in Charlie Brown's Christmas, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Linus recites uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, which I, I think is re- remarkable. We all have our favorite uh, Christmas movies and traditions, and, you know, it's White Christmas, and a one, It's a Wonderful Life, and Elf, and A Christmas Story, and Die Hard, and all of those good Christmas movies. Um, but this one's one that actually has this connection from the, the secular celebration that really happens alongside the Christian celebration of Christmas, of, of the coming of Jesus, of the incarnation. And we, in this Advent season, have been looking forward to the Christmas celebration, Jesus' first coming, but we've also been looking forward to the second coming, the second Advent of Jesus in our series going through some selections in the book of Revelation. And we find ourselves here in, in chapter 12, and, and I, this is a birth narrative. Uh, and it, it is certainly applicable in this season to, to talk about this. But it's big picture stuff. So Luke chapter 2 is, is the details of the second person of the Trinity, God becoming a man in the person of Jesus, born to, to Mary in Bethlehem. And we, we, we can talk about all those details, and those details matter. But what we find here in Revelation 12 is that it's a part of a much bigger picture. In fact, verse 5, the second half of verse 5 here really covers Luke chapter 2 all the way to Luke 24. It, it, it is big picture, right? 30,000 foot view, whatever you want to call it. And we need that. We desperately need to have that, that big picture. Uh, it, it's one of the things uh, that we think about as we do uh, liturgical art. The big picture matters, right? Or as people do liturgical art, and sometimes I help hang it. Um, but... You could look at some of the details in the banners that the kids have made. You could get up here really close and see some of the specific circles that the kids drew a few weeks ago, uh, one Sunday after church. Or you could see some of the ways that these pieces that will all come together over this next week and be here for Sunday in one unified, clean piece, this mess come together in clean uh, picture of beauty that uh, Jesus gives us. You could come and you can look at some of the small details or the way that the lights reflect through the broken mirrors. But the reality is we've done liturgical art before where you have something that is really good and beautiful. But if it's if it's not, if you're not thinking about the big picture, then it's it can't really be seen or appreciated from the congregation. Right. The way that all of this comes together has to be thought for. And the the folks who helped with this particular liturgical art did a great job of thinking of the big picture. And I encourage you to, if you haven't already, read read through the artist statement and see what's going on there. But that reality that all the things that we do in life, we often need the big picture. And here, Revelation 12 gives us just that when it comes to the birth of Jesus. Even specifically the birth 2,000 years ago, but how does it fit into the larger story? We see three characters that we're going to learn from here, again, in Revelation Lots of symbolic visions. And often we're told exactly what the different characters or things symbolize, and we have some of that here. And we're looking at three characters in this story. There is the woman, there is the the dragon, and there is the child. We'll learn and see the big picture story as we look at those three characters. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to the beauty of your word that comes to us with uh, an engagement of our imaginations, stories of pregnant women and 
dragons. And uh, Lord, we, we ask that you would use these things to communicate beautiful truth that matters to us right here and right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first character that we see that we're going to take a look at is the woman. And, and we think of the birth story as uh, the, the woman is Mary. But here it actually is, it's a, remember, big picture. The woman here is Israel. This is the people of God. We see the imagery in verse 1 with the sun and the moon and the, the crown, the diadem with, with 12 of 12 stars that she wears on it, the 12 tribes of Israel. And this looks back to the, the, the original hearers of this vision, as John told it, would have been very familiar with the, the whole of the Old Testament, both the, the narratives of, uh, and the prophecies and the books of wisdom. And so they would have very clearly understood the, the connection here to Joseph's vision in Genesis 37. And this sun and moon and stars, the 12 stars, the, tw- the 12 tribes of, of, uh, of Israel. This, this is a clear picture that the woman is Israel. It is the people of God. And we'll see it in a bit that it's also the new Israel. That is the church, the people of God even now. And so we find that the woman here is this, these followers of the Lord. And from the people of God comes this child. The imagery of, of the people of God as a, a pregnant woman happens as well in Isaiah and Hosea and Micah. So the original hearers of this vision, as John gave it, would have been very familiar with these realities. They would have understood that the woman here is Israel. And that the incarnation is God being born. I mean, it's that focus on him being born to the people of God, being born of the people of God. He is a fulfillment of the promises that came before. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when there was a, a promise of a descendant, of a seed to come that would conquer the serpent, that would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, there's a looking back to that. There is a, a looking back to the promises of God, to the people of God, and, and that this, the, the child of God comes from them. And there's this massive implications to, to God becoming a man, becoming one of his people. So that... We are reminded, again, that it's not just Israel in the Old Testament, not just the nation, but it is the people of God here and now. New Israel, the church. We see this in verse 17 very clearly that as the dragon becomes furious with the woman and goes to make war with her offspring, the offspring is described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is followers of Jesus come from the people of God. This is who the woman is. And so there's a reminder here, this big picture story, as we're seeing the the end of it here in in Revelation, the big picture includes us. So we we have our imaginations engaged as we think about that birth story. We think about the story of Jesus in Bethlehem, in the manger. We think about the shepherds and all that happened. And it's appropriate to to think about and imagine what was going on there. And this is a reminder that in that story, that we're included in it, that, that it matters for us. Here we see big picture that, that we're included in this story. And so there are implications for us being invited in, that, that he loved us enough to draw us in, to invite us in, and to do so by entering into the brokenness and the mess of our lives and in this world by becoming a man. By being born to the woman. And so this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Him coming and drawing us in. 
drawing us into the story. And, and he comes with, with great promises. We see the people of God are cared for and provided for. We're, we're going to get to the dragon in a moment. We, we don't really have to wait for point two to know that there is a world full of mess and that, that we desperately need help. And so in the midst of what we know is messy in this world, we're promised as part of the people of God that there is protection for us. We see it in verses 6, 14, and 16, this care for the woman. I meant to say this earlier, just helpful to note in this symbolic visions. Verses 1 through 7 is a section, and then 7 through 17 describes essentially in more detail some of the same things happening. We don't have two different stories. We have them told the same story uh, with different details included. So... If we go back to to verse 6, there's this care for the the woman who fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So there's, we we think of sometimes the wilderness as a a difficult place to be, and certainly it is, but here is a place where the people of God continually have been, and, and Israel here, and we as a result, are cared for and nourished. We see the same thing happening in the wilderness in Verse 14, when there is a eagle with two wings provided so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time. And again, these, so we, won't, we don't have time to go into all of the symbols of the 1260 days or the time and time and half a time. But there is this clear picture, big picture, that God is caring for and providing for and protecting the people of God. So us being invited in comes with this promise that he loves us enough to protect us and to care for us in the midst of uh, the mess of the world. And that with that comes encouragement. It comes encouragement that we're a part of the story in this way. But it also comes, I think, at a time, at times, it's a challenge to us that, hey, we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of something more here. That if this story is real and true, if Jesus was really born to a virgin 2,000 years ago. And if it's a part of this bigger picture that we're seeing here, these cosmic forces battling against one another, if we're a part of that story, then there is nothing else that matters more than this. And so there is a challenge for us to recognize that we are a part of this bigger story and to allow it to be the first thing for us. Pat and I had the, the privilege of on Friday night watching at the IRT, A Christmas Carol. And it's a, 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 beautiful, a beautiful version of a great story that many of us, all of us are familiar with. Uh, a Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens wrote about 150 years ago. And then there are a few, two or three renditions of it since then, plays and musicals and uh, uh, the Disney version and the Muppets version and the, uh, Jim Carrey version, the Bill Murray version. I mean, there's just like so many stories of Scrooge and the, the, whole, the whole thing, right? And uh, it's a good story. And it arguably shaped the very way that we celebrate Christmas now. But it is interesting that one of the main points that is, is being made by the ghost, by the, these, these forces who are showing Scrooge the things that he's missing... There is is a call to recognize that there is more to life than himself, right? He's called out of his selfishness, and he's called to to care for other people. And, sorry, spoiler alert, uh, 
That's actually what happens. He actually ends up really engaged in Bob Cratchit's life and Tiny Tim and other people in, uh, in the town. He engages relationally with his nephew and his nephew's wife. And he, he, he comes out of it having learned this great lesson, right? And, and that is, by the way, a good lesson to learn. Now, to, to be clear, uh, as we're saying this story is central, that is an outworking of the gospel, caring for other people, caring for those in need. But there's no gospel story. There's no Christian Christmas story in A Christmas Carol. And, uh, and that has come to inform much of the way that we celebrate Christmas. But it is a reminder that there's something bigger going on, that we're called to be a part of something else. As followers of Jesus, we're reminded here that we're called to be a part of something else. It's not just about me. And it's not even just about the way that Jesus in the story of the incarnation affects me personally, which it does. But it's about a global cosmic story. And so we then find this picture of the battle as we ask, okay, what does it look like for me to be a part of the story? I'm, I'm part of Israel. I'm part of this imagery of the woman. I'm, I'm a part of it. What does that look like for me to be a part of it? Well, there's an invitation to join in what is clearly a battle. The dragon, the dragon, the Christmas dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, not Stan, the deceiver of the whole world. Verse 9. This is this clear picture. The, the, the dragon is Satan, is the devil, is the deceiver. And he comes in verse 3 with great power. Verse 3 describes him as the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, seven diadems, seven crowns. And the, the heads are a picture of authority and power. So he comes, this adversary, Satan, the devil, comes with power. There's a picture. This isn't a picture of intellect. Even in, in, these, in the ancient Near East, the, the intellect came from the heart. So this is a picture of the crowns and the heads is power. There is power in this adversary and the one who is waging this war on the woman and her offspring, verse 17. And we do well to acknowledge the power that comes. And, and maybe we don't really need to take that much time to recognize the power that exists in the evil and brokenness in, in this world. But scripture again and again and again lovingly acknowledges the reality of evil and brokenness that we experience the loss that we experience. In this Christmas season, what, what is often a very difficult season for many because it's supposed to be one full of joy and, and there are so many things that make that difficult at different times. And so there is, is in the scripture, in this passage, a recognition of that reality and that is a loving communication and truth to, to grasp and to hold onto. So we don't make the mistake of... of Really, a Christmas carol story, or so many of the other Christmas movies and stories that are, oh, you just need the Christmas spirit of, you know, you need to dig into your, your goodness and just love and care for other people and have that spirit of self-sacrifice. That's just not who we are. It doesn't recognize the reality of the brokenness of this world, that it's not that simple, that we can't just step into the Christmas spirit at Christmas time, much less all year long, Right? That, that is a, a failure to recognize the power of brokenness and evil and, and that within ourselves, in our own hearts, that exists 
every day of our lives. And, and this steps into that reality. But the same is true in, in the church, that sometimes we hear the story, of Jesus came and now everything's okay. If you just love Jesus, then, then he'll, he'll fix what is broken. And ultimately, yes, and we get to that, particularly here in the book of Revelation, but there is a clear owning of the fact that the hope in this moment comes alongside great struggle and evil and pain. And so we do well to sit in that reality, to be aware of that reality. And, and yet what this story tells us is that even while that is happening, alongside of that, in fact, there is great reason for hope. There's great reason for hope, even with the dragon waging war. Might not feel like that. We, we, we think and see some of the consequences, actually, of the, Christ, the Christmas story. Uh, Eugene Peterson's book on Revelation, uh, he says this about the nativity story, and this passage in particular. He says, this is not the nativity story that we grew up with. It's true for me. But it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Herod, Judas, Pilate. Ferocious wickedness is goaded to violence by this life. That is the life of, of this child. Can a swaddled infant survive the machines of terror? Can promise outlast horror? We want him to live. We long for this rule, but it's impossible. Is it impossible in this kind of world? Are not the means lacking? That's the, the question we often have. Because the reality is that this, this story, the immediate consequences of the birth of Jesus are, are not Christmas carols and stories by the fire. It's war. If we go to the Christmas story in Matthew's account, right after Jesus is born, Herod comes to Bethlehem and kills all the kids around that age in order to get to Jesus. Fortunately, Jesus had fled to Egypt, but uh, that is what flows from the birth story. That's the picture that we have here, the dragon waging war on God's people as a result of the birth of Jesus. That's the immediate consequences. The battle is engaged, and, and we see the tools that, that Satan used, that the devil uses. He is the deceiver of the world. He lies again and again. We see the visions of that lie in verse 15. It, from his mouth comes this flood with which he's trying to flood out and destroy the woman in the wilderness. And yet there is protection there. But he lies. He tells lies. This is, goes back to Genesis 3 in the fall. This is the, the main tool of Satan is to deceive. He also accuses, we see in verse 10, he is the accuser. That is, he is calling out even the people of God and, and saying that they're not worthy. And yet because of the blood of the lamb, get there in a moment, we know the story, right? Because of the blood of the lamb, we cannot be accused. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. And yet he accuses. There is something powerful happening in the work of Satan in this world. And, and, and we are saying, as we look at Scripture, because the Scripture is saying that the devil, that Satan, that the spiritual battle that's being described here in heaven and then now on earth is real, and it has effect on us. And, and that's hard because we, we live in a world that, all, that one kind of says, oh, that's just silliness, right? I mean, 
the devil has just become a, a mascot. NHL team, the New Jersey Devils. The, you have the blue, the Duke Blue Devils. You got this Arizona Sun Devils. It's it's just silliness, right? And and yet, there's a story here that there's real power and real evil uh, in this character, in this spiritual battle that exists. How do we deal with that in our own minds, not even knowing exactly how it plays out sometimes? C.S. Lewis with a pretty famous quote about this reality says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils one is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician a magician with the same delight so what we find here is a recognition that this is real and that there are powers at work in this world, spiritual battle that we're called to be a part of. And, and yet it gives us great hope because we have the picture of the one who has conquered, getting ahead to point three. But we see in verse 12, even as this we learn about Satan, his time is short. He comes with wrath because he knows that his time is short. And this is, again, big picture. His time is short, we say. That, uh, we, we question that, right? This is a, a centuries-old, millennia-old story, and yet it hasn't yet been fixed. We want it to be fixed. So we cry out, as John does at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. We, we want it to, to end, to be fixed finally and fully, but it's not yet. And yet we see big picture is that there is a God who's in control of this battle, and the devil's time is short. We can take great comfort in that, knowing that this God is, that our God is speaking into, working in this pain and mess that we experience, and he does so with great hope through the child. Jesus himself, it's his story. It always has been his story. It always will be his story. He is at the center. The child is at the center. He loves us to invite us in. He enters into this mess so that we can be a part of his story. But it is absolutely all his story. This is the beauty of the incarnation, his birth to Israel, him becoming a child. The whole story in Luke chapter 2, that is what we, what we see here. And it brings hope for us because we find that his humble story of service, being born to poor parents, being born in complete obscurity, that it is through that that ultimately he wins with great power and hope because he is conquered by his blood. Look at, well, we could go to verse five. The second half of verse five says that, well, all of verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And we see that as he reigns and rules, caught up to God, this is, again, that was that picture of he was born. And then we know the rest of the story. He lived, he ministered, he suffered, he died, he rose again, and then he ascended to the throne. That's what's encapsulated here in verse 5. But we find that he brings salvation, verse 10. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Even in the face of great adversity and death itself, 
they conquered because of the blood of the lamb, because he is the one who has conquered. So that story from Luke 2 and all of that humility, it actually points to and brings the power that gives us this kind of hope that he is able to conquer this big, scary dragon. So Peterson goes on when he has asked, can promise outlast horror? Can we have hope essentially? He says, but we overestimate the politics of Rome. That is just the worldly powers that exist. We, we overestimate the politics of Rome and we underestimate the politics of grace. St. John's imagination is adrenaline to us of little faith. And we are again dauntless, unimpressed by dragon bluster. Sure of God's preservation, the child survives. Salvation is assured. God's rule is intact. It is St. John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of Matthew and Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, nor domesticated into drabness, nor commercialized into worldliness. He makes explicit what is implicit in the gospel stories. The entire creation is clothing for God's people who are, even Mary, mother to Messiah. There is this incredible hope that he, he brings the power to bear on the story that comes in Matthew and Luke. That, that, those nativity stories, they are powerful to provide us a God who has conquered himself, that has had the victory over Satan, so that we then might conquer. If we remember earlier in Revelation, we talked about this before, even though we didn't, I didn't preach on chapter 2 or 3, there are the letters to the seven churches, seven letters to the seven churches, and each one ends with, to the one who conquers, and there is a promise. And yet what we find throughout the rest of the book of Revelation is the one who has conquered is Jesus, and we're invited into the story to ourselves be able to conquer because of what he has done, because he fulfills the promises, because he comes with that iron rod, and this is paint a picture back to the messianic psalm of psalm 2 verse 9 the promise of the son of god coming with an uh, a rod of iron that is able to crush those who are doing injustice and evil in this world that he comes with power to reign and rule over not only all of the nations and the kings that exist but over the whole cosmos he is the lion of the tribe of judah he is the promise that has been promised for century upon century. He is David's son, his heir, that everlasting king, that final king. And he invites us because of what he has done to join him and ourselves be able to conquer because this is what he's done. We, we live in light of what he has done for us. We, we see this on smaller scales often. Uh, we, we think about maybe you played sports and you were on a team with a star and you won because of that. So maybe you were the star. But maybe probably more of us, we were on a team that we ended up winning because of some really gifted athlete, one or two of them, right? Maybe we're even fans of a team and we talk about we, right? So even as somebody who moved to Indianapolis in 2013, it wouldn't be unusual for me to say we won the Super Bowl in 2007. I didn't even live here at the time, right? But even the fans become a part of the team and and what that team accomplished, we experience, and maybe even more so what Peyton Manning accomplished uh, 
the, the rest of us experience. I mean, people talk about just down the road, about a mile down the road, Lucas Oil being the house that Peyton built. Um, the, the reality is we, we live off of uh, that success to some degree. We, we, we rejoice in it. I think some, it can, can be appropriate. It also can become unhealthy. But uh, we, we are able to say we because of something that somebody else did, right? All the more significantly here, we can conquer. We can have hope because of the one who conquered by his blood. And his blood, we're about to celebrate in a moment, his body broken and his blood poured out is what accomplished for us salvation. It cleansed us from the evil that runs in our own hearts, from the ways that, that we uh, ourselves bring brokenness into this world. We were forgiven of that and drawn into the work that he's done, drawn into the people of God, into Israel, into the church, so that these promises can be for us. And all of that is because of what Jesus has done. That is what, what Christmas, what the nativity story is about. But it is a reminder again and again. Yes, it was the, the birth 2,000 years ago. We can picture Bethlehem, that story. But it's because of that. That was leading to his conquering all things, ruling the cosmos itself, winning the ultimate spiritual battle, and inviting us to be a part of it with him. Let's pray.